When I was very young, and I think it was the first book I ever read about the Holocaust, it involved um, rescue efforts by very noble organizations like the Vat Hatzalah, of the Orthodox Vat Hatzalah in, in the United States during the war. It involved the attempt at rescue efforts, that not enough rescue was done, and all kinds of accusations about which people did not do enough to rescue. I think the second book I read about the Holocaust was about very inspirational stories of people in the camps, about how despite everything else they were able to put on tefillin or daven. And I think as a young child, I kind of got the picture of the Holocaust was some people were rescued, the ones who didn't put on tefillin in Auschwitz. And it's obviously a very, very um, warped view. And it's only when I got a bit older and you start to research a bit more that you uncover what the real horror of that period of time was. And uh, and today, Yehudi Geber, Jewish History Soundbites, another podcast in Jewish history, will cover a more tragic uh, story, a little bit of an overview, sad, a little bit horrifying, but in the context of Shiva Suvatamas, which is today, and um, a day of fasting, a day of remembering national tragedy, it may be appropriate once in a while to really um, confront some of the churban, some of the tragedy of our history, even in its most stark uh, fashion. So this, today's podcast will be a little more subdued, a little bit more of a uh, sadder and tragic topic, but each one has its time and place, and there's definitely what to learn from here as well. Um, in reality, the Holocaust was not about rescue, and it was not about the people who, although very inspirational, and although... They are the heroes who were able to somehow survive and rebuild and tell us their stories. It's not all about the people who put on tefillin in Auschwitz. The story is about a massive extermination, and I want to focus on one aspect of it, just so we comprehend the loss and just comprehend also what we had. And and everyone, you know, obviously can take it how... What 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 to take out of it? How to rebuild and how to be inspired by that, uh, you know, as well. The Kiddush Hashem, the dying or Kiddush Hashem, the massive obsession of the Nazis to wipe out the Jewish people, which in itself is something to learn from. The final solution, and um, just again to put it into perspective, the. We, seem, we think of the Holocaust as something that took six years, beginning of World War II to the end of World War II is six years, and the Holocaust took place within the context of World War II. So it's a six-year-long process, which is true. Some historians will say that it's from the beginning of Hitler's rise to power. It comes to power in January of 1933. That's six years before World War II, so that's altogether 12 years, right? And we may think it's semantics, we may think it's very nice for historians to argue about whether it was six years, 12 years, this year's, that year's, when does it start? 
but these things all ha also have legal ramifications. If a German Jew escapes the Nazi regime after he loses his job and they seize his home, and he, they seize his property, and he s flees from his home in 1936 and moves to Washington Heights in New York and starts from scratch with a shirt on his back. 1936 is three years before World War II begins. There's no concentration camps yet, there's no final solution, there's no ghettos, there's no nothing. But he's a victim of the Nazi regime, and therefore he, if, if in the certain circumstances, can actually get compensation, can get money. And, and these, therefore these, these questions of who is a survivor and who is a refugee and who is considered a victim of Nazi oppression is not just a historical question, but it's a legal question, it's a financial question, and it's an important one. But for the, for the purposes of this, of this story here, we could think the Holocaust really, the main thrust of the Holocaust was in a much more focused and smaller period of time. In March of 1942, we know, this is something we all grew up with, we know that six million Jews were approximately, drop less, were murdered by the Nazis during the great Churban in Europe, the Holocaust. Six million Jews. In March of 1942, 20% of those six million were already killed. 80% of the ones who would eventually be killed were still alive. March 1942. In, I'm sorry, in, in, uh, in March, just making sure I remember the months. February 1942, excuse me, February 1942. In March of 1943, which if my calculation is correct, it's 13 months later. 13 months later, the numbers were the exact opposite. 80% of those who would eventually be killed were already killed. And 20% of the ones who were eventually going to be killed were still alive. That means 60% of the ones who were killed were killed within a period of time of 13 months. That period of time is the decimation of Polish Jewry, which was known as Operation Reinhard, named after one of the worst SS men in a, in a criminal organization with one of the most evil people in history. He was at the, at the top. Reinhard Heydrich was the architect and chief engineer of the of the SS and of the final solution against the Jewish uh, to solve the Jewish question, the extermination of the Jews, he's assassinated by Czech partisans in uh, in the middle of the war in March of 1942, and therefore the operation to wipe out the Jews of Poland is named for him by the SS, and the murder of the Jews of Poland becomes the main feature of the Holocaust. Before the war, Poland is the center of Jewish life in the world. There's 3,300,000 Jews in Poland. It's the center of all Jewish life in every sense, religious, political, cultural, everything. 90% of them are killed. 3 million out of 3,300,000. How many people did we say were killed in the Holocaust? How many Jews? 6 million. That means 50% of the Jews killed in the Holocaust were Polish Jews, Polish Jewry. Almost all of them killed during this one year time, during this 13 months of Operation Reinhardt.
It's the extermination of Polish Jewry. The SS descend upon every single ghetto, large and small, throughout Poland during that year and deport them to death camps. And this is another distinction. Very often the image that we have of the Holocaust is the striped uniforms, the numbers, the concentration camps, the roll calls, the beatings, which was a story. It's a story in itself. But that's not, that's not where it mainly happened. There were places called death camps. And these death camps were few in number, with almost no survivors. There's no selection. There's no selectia upon arrival. There's no uniforms, striped uniforms. There's no numbers. There's almost no workers in these camps. They're death camps. They're factories of death. And that's where the Polish, peop- the Polish Jewry, European Jewry in general, not only Polish Jewry, is exterminated. The Nazis built three large camps, death camps in eastern Poland for the purpose of Operation Reinhardt. They, one near Warsaw called Treblinka, two near Lublin called Sobibor and Belzec. There's a fourth camp on the other side of Poland near Lodz called Chelemno. And between these four camps, two million Jews are killed. They're death camps. There's one survivor of Belzec, Rudolf Rader, who was able to escape. There are three survivors of Chelmno. Shimon Srebnik was one of them who gave a testimony about Chelmno, who was able to run away even though his legs were chained together. In Treblinka and Sobibor, there was a few more. There were revolts in both of them. There was the few workers in these camps. These workers were called the Zunderkommando. They had to work in the gas chambers. They had the most gruesome task in human history to actually work in the gas chambers, and they were the witnesses to the crime, and they revolted both in Treblinka on August 3rd, 1943, and in Sobibor on October 14th, 1943. And in Sobibor, almost 50 survived the war, and in Treblinka, close to 70 survived the war. And those are the only survivors of these camps. There's almost no survivors. Just a few weeks ago, actually, it was in the news, Semyon Rosenfeld, was a uh, Soviet Jew from the Ukraine who was serving in the Red Army in the beginning of the invasion of the German army to the Soviet Union. He's captured as a prisoner of war in a Red Army uniform near Baranovich. And he's brought to a prisoner of war camp, and they discover that he's a Soviet Jew with men who was easy to, to figure out who was Jewish. And they said, you're a Jew, we don't care if you're a Red Army soldier. They separated him and other Jewish soldiers, and they send him to labor camp near Minsk, and then to Sobibor, to a death camp, where he luckily is one of the only ones chosen to be part of the Zunderkommando. And he then um, is part of the revolt in Sobibor. He joins the partisans in the forest. He's in hiding for a while. And then he uh, rejoins the Red Army when they cross the lines into, over the Bug River into Poland. He rejoins the Red Army, and he makes it to the Battle of Berlin, and he writes on the Reichstag building after the end of the Battle of Berlin a, a, a memorial for all the Jews of Sobibor, for all the Jews of Poland and so, the Soviet Union. He writes, Baranovich, Sobibor, Berlin. He inscribes that onto the walls of the Reichstag. When Semyon Rosenfeld moved to Israel a few years ago, a few weeks ago he died. He was 90-something. Um, and he was the last survivor of any death camp. Again, not of concentration camps. There's still Auschwitz survivors around. There's still from Buchenwald, Dachau, and other concentration camps. But he was the last survivor of a death camp. An amazing story in itself. You think about of these death camps, even, even a place like 
Treblinka was open for 13 months. 800,000 Jews are killed in Treblinka. 13 months, 800,000 Jews, including close to 400,000 Jews from the Warsaw Ghetto itself. The great Aktsia of the Warsaw Ghetto in two months in the summer of 1942 wiped out 300,000 Jews were brought to the Umschlagplatz, the gathering area at the edge of the ghetto, loaded onto trains and brought to Treblinka, just a few hour ride away. And on arrival, every single one of them, almost without exception, is gassed. There's no labor camp, there's no roll call, there's no anything. That's the wiping out of Polish Jewry. Ironically, Warsaw, which was the center of the Jewish world, and it's the, it was the, the place, it was like the Yerushalayim or Brooklyn of today, it was the center of Jewish life. The Churban of Warsaw Jewry begins on Tisha which also was very symbolic. It goes, starts on Tisha B'Av of 1942, July 23rd, and the people in Warsaw noticed that. And this is when the Churban of Polish Jewry is really beginning with the destruction of Warsaw, the Warsaw Jewish community. And that was also a, a ominous uh, turn of events, that those deportations. So these deportations are being carried out across all of Poland. Take another place like Sobibor, for example. It's taking Jews from the whole Lublin district um, to Sobibor. A quarter of a million Jews are killed and gassed at Sobibor. 600 Jews are kept in the Zunderkommando. They're the ones who revolt. In the revolt itself, 300 Jews are killed. 300 make it to the forest. It's considered the most successful revolt of any, in any camp in all of the history of World War II, from prisoner of war camp or concentration, any camp. A bunch of Nabuch Jews in Sobibor in a death camp. An amazing story in itself how a, the son of a Polish Orthodox rabbi named Leib or Leon Feldhandler, together with an officer, a Jewish officer, a Soviet communist officer in the Red Army, who got there the same way that Semyon Rosenfeld did. His name was Sasha Pacherski. Two Jews, Leon Feldhandler and Sasha Pacherski, who come from the most opposite backgrounds possible, they join together to try to break out of Sobibor, and they do. And of those 300 Jews who break out, 50 survive the war. And that gives an insight as to the what I call the hopelessness of survival or the hopelessness of rescue, especially in, in the areas where the Nazis were so dominant in the East, in Poland, where they made sure to find every single Jew. And the SS, the Nazis, and all their collaborators were intent on getting back down to every single one. And I'll bring out another story that really illustrates it, that the, the hopelessness, the, 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 the way they had the, the Jews in Poland during this time of the deportations almost had no chance. There was a small concentration camp not far from Lublin called Yanushov. Yanushov, there's a few hundred lab, slave laborers, Jewish slave laborers in an SS camp. And a Jew who had escaped from the camp and joined a partisan unit, a Jewish partisan unit, which was very not common. Most partisan units were either Soviet, Polish, Ukrainian. Here was a Jewish partisan unit. And he comes back to the camp. Now they're armed, they're partisans. And they break into the camp. They kill the SS. This is the only known instance of Jewish partisans coming and actually rescuing a camp and the whole entire Holocaust, and the whole entire World War II, an incredible story, for some reason not well known. And he comes in with his partisan group, they surprise the SS at night, they break into the camp, they kill the SS, 
and they run into the barracks and they say, Jews, save yourselves, run, get away. And everyone runs, most of them run. They run away. They're free, right? They're all free. They're free in Nazi-occupied Poland. They run to the forest. Some of them join partisans. Some of them join here. Some of them join there. There was one Jew who joined the partisan unit and they're trying to get themselves together and he was sent off to get food after he had escaped from this camp. It was about a week or so later. When he comes back with the food, he notices in a clearing in the forest, he sees from far that his friends, who he had just left to get food for them, are surrounded with their hands up. The SS had found them in the forest. They were searching for them with dogs. And they found them. They rounded them up and he had them killed. Now he's alone in the forest. What does he do? You know what he did? He went to another camp, another small concentration slave labor camp nearby, and he turns himself in. And he becomes a prisoner in the camp. And he survived the war. As his prisoner in concentration camp, he was deported from one camp to another, and he barely survived the beatings and the starvation and the disease and everything else, and he survived. How do we know the whole story of Yanashov and the escape from Yanashov? And the break-in. And what happened? How do we even know this whole story? This man told us the story. And he's the only survivor. So all these freed prisoners who had come with such a courageous act from a partisan who broke out and they were able to get out of the camp, all of them got killed after they were free. The one and only person who survived was the one who said, you know what, I'm probably safer inside the camp. And he went and turned himself into another camp. And he survived and told the story. And that's the sick and horrifying irony of the Operation Reinhardt, of the decimation of Polish Jewry during the Holocaust, was that it was so total, it was so destructive, and it was so final for everyone, that the final solution that the Nazis had decided upon towards the end of 1941, that they had already started killing the Jews in the Soviet Union in pits, Einsatzgruppen, on the outskirts of their towns, and towards the end of 1941 they decide on an all-encompassing final solution. They're going to build camps with gas chambers, and they're going to wipe out the Jewish people, and they start with the Jews of Poland. The Jews of Poland are the most dominant, they're the largest populations, they're already in ghettos for the last two years. They start these massive deportations to these ghetto, from the ghettos to the death camps, with almost no one to survive. At the conclusion of Operation Reinhardt, after Belzec had already closed down long before Sobibor and Treblinka, they had the revolts, and the Nazis then closed down those two death camps. There was almost no Jews left in Poland. It's November of 1943. Odilo Glabochnik is the SS officer, one of the worst and most cruel SS officers in the hierarchy of the SS. He is in charge of Operation Reinhardt, of carrying it out. His headquarters are in Lublin, near the Majdanek concentration and death camp. In his he sees that the operation was a success, and he sends a telegram to Heinrich Himmler, the chief of the SS, and Globochnik writes in this telegram, which exists as a document today, he says, Operation Reinhardt was a success. We're done. We finished. There's no one left to kill here. We closed down the death camps. It's November 1943. Keep in mind that, that the war continues for another two years beyond this, almost. And the Polish jury is already non-existent at this point. And he says, and he says um, um, I would like that my officers, my SS officers who carried out this operation so well, be given a, some sort of award 
some sort of military award for carrying out orders, for carrying out their operation. This is what he writes in the telegram to Heinrich Himmler. And in order to finish off, to kind of celebrate the SS and their, and their sadism and their cruel way of thinking of wiping out the Jewish people, they take the last few labor camps in the Lublin area that still have Jews inside, Maidanik, Ponyatava, Tarveniki, and a couple of others, and November 3rd and 4th, they have what's called Operation Aktion Enternfest, Harvest Festival, in all cultures around the world. That's why Thanksgiving in the United States is in November. At the end of the harvest, at the end of the summer harvest, there's a celebration of the abundance of food, and the SS's sick minds, the celebration of wiping out Polish Jewry, was also Enternfest, Harvest Festival. November 3rd and 4th, 1943, they marched 42,000 Jews out of those camps that I mentioned and into pits. Now they're not even using gas chambers. And into mass graves, they're machine gunned to death in a two-day operation to finish off Operation Reinhardt, the destruction of Polish Jewry. Polish Jewry ends on those two days. One of those killed in Tarvniki, Travniki, excuse me, on that day is the Piazetsna Rebbe. It's a symbolic ending of Polish Jewry, one of the most famous dominant, dynamic, charismatic, incredible leaders of pre-war Polish Jewry in the Warsaw Ghetto with his schmuzen that later became to be printed as the Eish Kaidish, his farm that are still used and influential and popular today. And he's one of those killed. One of the leaders, religious leaders, Hasidic leaders of Polish Jewry is killed during that Enternfest of, uh, of Polish Jewry, which the Nazis in their attempt to completely wipe out the Jewish people. This was Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, and to visit these places to hear the stories and be inspired by the lives and the tragic deaths of these people. Um, You can also subscribe and follow Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify. Don't miss an episode. You can also follow Jewish History Soundbites on Twitter at jsoundbites. And I hope you enjoyed.